If you were to take a day trip down to Forest Park in St. Louis, Missouri, and you were just to start driving around, uh, you would eventually come across the St. Louis Art Museum. Um, It's a top-notch museum that's filled with galleries of various works of art. And what's great is that inside this museum, really, there's just no two galleries that are the same. To move from one gallery to the next is to is to move and transition um, between just all kinds of, of works of art. You can literally be in one gallery that's marked um, by art from um, the ancient world only to transition into a, another gallery that's filled with contemporary art. And to go from a gallery that's filled with ancient art from, let's say, ancient Greece to a gallery that's filled with art uh, that is contemporary art from post-World War II, just to, in the least, it, what we can say is this. It's an extreme contrast. It's a sharp contrast to go from the art of the ancient world to the art of, let's say, post, post-World War II. When as we turn our attention to this transition that Peter gives us, the transition from chapter 1 into the transition of chapter 2, it's much like that transition from the ancient world and the sharp contrast that we get moving into that gallery that's filled with contemporary art. In many ways, moving from chapter 1 of 2 Peter into chapter 2 of 2 Peter, it is a transition between two contrasting galleries. So if you think about it, in chapter 1, we were in Peter's first gallery, And mainly, it was filled with just two portraits. In his first portrait, he gave attention to God's saving work of faith. He painted with the brushstrokes of God's grace. He was highlighting the impact of God's ability to save. He was moving back and forth between the foreground and the background of the power of Christ and the promises of eternal life found in Him. And then he shifted to another portrait in that first gallery. And it really was a a portrait that was just totally enamored with the transfigured Christ. He was using splashes of color to highlight how Christ was transfigured on that holy mountain. How he was lit up with the hues of majesty, honor, and glory. And even in the background of of that portrait that was highlighting Christ and the glories of his transfiguration, we even see some of the the vibrant colors and the superior illumination of God, the Holy Spirit, and the way he worked in the lives of the prophets, carrying them along to speak the words of God. But to walk from the gallery of chapter 1 into the gallery of chapter 2 is to find nothing less than contrast in the extreme. Like the first gallery we again find two portraits here in our verses this morning. But here we find a contrast that just jars the senses. The pictures hanging on the walls of chapter 2, they're just totally painted with colors from a different palette. Gone are the true prophets and teachers. No longer are we referring to men and teachers who are carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's not the, the colors that Peter is painting with. Gone are the the qualities that mark a life that's been transformed by grace, where Peter was earlier talking about this idea of how we are to grow in virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. Peter says the qualities that mark this portrait of of these people, 
It's just pure and simple. It's two. It's sensuality and greed. And in their place where Peter was painting with the brushstrokes of eternal life, saying to know the grace of God is to know the certainty of eternal life, now he's saying that these ones who are marked by the ungodly qualities of sensuality and greed, in the place of these these hopes of eternal life that we have, what we find now are sensuality and greed that, that are just simply going to result in condemnation and destruction for these ones who have wholeheartedly abandoned the things of Christ and they're running after the things of the flesh. And so now that we are standing in that second gallery, if you can imagine in your mind's eye, it's like Peter is standing there with us and he, he beckons you over and he says, let's, let's go a little bit closer now and let's start looking at these two portraits that we're going to find starting in this gallery. And if you lean forward a little bit, the little brass plaque that's hanging Underneath the first portrait, as we roll into chapter 2, you would read these words, the impact of false teachers. This is the first portrait that that Peter's going to paint for us. He's drawing us over to, to call our attention to the impact of false teachers. That's what we're going to find in the first three verses. So with this portrait, Peter reminds us that false teaching is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It is pervasive. It's a problem that has dogged the steps of God's people every time and every place. No matter where you are, no matter when you are, there's constantly going to be that tug and the pull, people who will come along with the intention of leading God's people astray to lead them away from the plumb line of God's gospel. Peter writes, starting off there in verse 1, just as false prophets arose among God's people, God's Old Testament people, so remember he's making the transition. He says, this is how you know those who are the true prophets of God. They're the ones carried along by the Holy Spirit. They're speaking the true things of God that over time their words are lining up and they're proving to be true concerning the things of God. Then he transitions and he says, listen, just as there were true prophets of God among his Old Testament people, what you need to know is this, there were also false prophets. And just as there are false prophets among God's Old Testament people, what you need to know is that there's going to be false teachers among you today. So in contrast to those men who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, Peter just simply says there will be people who will claim to speak from God, but in their, all their speakings and all their teaching, they're not really being carried along by the Holy Spirit. The thing that's actually carrying them along are two things, their sensuality and their greed. And so pay, Peter paints in these details of sensuality and greed into this first portrait by showing us two things. It's what these false teachers do and the kind of influence that they have. So first, what they do is this. These false teachers, they destroy and they manipulate. You see that in verse 1. You see this in verse 3. Peter says these false teachers, they secretly bring in destructive heresies And in their greed, they exploit you with false words. See, the danger of false teaching, it lies in its subtlety. Any good false teacher, he does not do this. He does not walk into the door with a plaque hanging around his neck which says, by the way, I am a false teacher and I am motivated by sensuality and greed. My sole aim is to destroy you. Please start following me. No false teacher does that. 
Every false teacher who comes with the motivation of sensuality and greed, he comes with a subtlety aiming to slowly begin to deviate from the truth so that over a course of period and time, you just sort of lift up your eyes and you go like, how in the world did we drift so far from the truth? Well, it's because these men are destructive and they are manipulative. They come teaching with plausible words as they seek to smuggle in their deviant ideas. That's the word behind, that's the idea behind the word heresies there. It's literally slight deviation is the idea behind it. They come in with enough truth that sounds like the truth, but if you just sort of start picking apart what they're actually saying, it's just ever so slightly deviating from the truth. And subtly over a course of time, what they do is they bring their listeners to destruction because in essence, they're leading people away from Christ himself. See, this is what the Apostle Peter was on about when he said in Acts chapter 20, if you remember, he's, he's there in Ephesus, he's talking to the, the Ephesian church, and he says this to these, these believers, I know, uh, Paul is saying, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. The Apostle John, he, he raises the alarm right in the same vein. If you go into John's first letter and you turn to chapter 4, the Apostle John says this, Do not believe every spirit. Do not believe every utterance that comes from someone saying, I'm speaking on behalf of God, is what he means when he says, Do not believe every spirit. Just because someone is dressed in the garb of Christianity, just because someone is clothed in the language of religion, John is saying, don't just lower your guard and just bite hook, line, and sinker. Do not believe every spirit, but what should you do? You should test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Why? For, John says, many false prophets have gone out into the world, he says. And so if we were to ask Peter, why, why are they doing this? If we're standing there looking at this portrait in this gallery and we see all these fine line brushstrokes delineating this truth that false teachers are coming in and we ask Peter, like, why are you honing in on this sort of detail? Like, what is the motivation behind these men who are going to come in and do this? Peter says, because it's all about the Benjamins. It's greed. Cash. And their love of money, that's, that's what's motivating them. They are willing to scam others with their words so they can lie in their own pockets at someone else's expense. Again, that's what we see in verse 3. In their greed, they will exploit you with false words. So why are they spitting out false words? Because they want money, you've got money, and so they're willing to come in and say, I'm going to say whatever I need to say in order to get your money into my pocket. That is the motivation of my heart and why I am speaking in this way. <laughs> so they are destructive. And they are manipulative, but when you zoom in on verse 2, what you see is that despite their destruction, despite their manipulation, they still exert great influence. Again, because they're subtle. They're not coming in saying, my aim is to bilk you of your cash and do whatever I can to destroy you. In their subtlety, they come in teaching 
falsity. And what it does is people are not thinking with their Bibles open and they begin to draw many to them. In other words, if you want to just simplify that down, false teachers are attractive. There's something magnetic about these people. Peter says, not some, but many follow them. And what they follow, verse 2, is their sensuality. So if you think about that word sensuality, I mean, it's sort of an, somewhat of an archaic word. We don't go tossing it around a lot. But when Peter is writing about this idea of sensuality, what he's doing is he's talking about their lifestyle of these false teachers and their message. So in a sense, that word sensuality, we usually just link it to this idea of like sexual promiscuity, people who are just very like licentious. I mean, they, just, they're, they do whatever they want to do in the realm of, of sexuality, Whatever feels good to them and pleases the senses, that's what they run after. And there's very much that idea in the realm of, of sensuality. So their lifestyle, these false teachers, was apparently one marked by sexual promiscuity, materialism. And because they are living this kind of lifestyle, they're drawing a crowd, Peter says. But there's also this idea of their sensuality was affecting their message. So while on the other hand... This message of theirs, it was marked by sensuality in this way. It was bypassing the mind, and it was going right after the senses. Their whole approach of these false teachers was more concerned with just feeling good than actually anchoring themselves in truth. See, this is what the Apostle Paul, again, whenever he's writing his letter to, to Timothy, his, his, his pastoral understudy, and in his last letter that Paul would, ever, that would write that we have in our scriptures, 2 Timothy, he is warning Timothy of the exact same things that Peter is doing in his last letter that we have from him. And if you go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, we find, Peter, or we find Paul writing this to Timothy. He says, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They will not have a marathon mentality, a perseverance mentality when it comes to sound teaching. Why? Because the world is crashing in saying the ways of Christ are archaic. The ways of God that was for a certain culture for a certain time don't hold the line on God's ways, God's word, God's truth. Don't endure this. Just go with the flow. And Paul says there is a time coming when people will go, it's just simply easier to cash in on the things of God than to actually endure, do what's necessary to persevere in regard to sound teaching. So if they're not going to endure sound teaching, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to have itching ears that will need to be tickled with false words. Because that's true, what they will do is they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. It's the exact same thing that Peter just said last week when he says, listen, we're not following cleverly devised myths. We're not running after fables here. And Paul is saying the same thing. See, these men that... Peter was addressing, they're fully aware of the reality that people are going to have itching ears, and so they were fully delighted to scratch that itch with their words. See, this is the insidious allure of false teaching. There's something attractive about teaching that just denies the judgment to come, because if you deny the judgment to come, that means you can live however you want to. 
See, there's something attractive about teaching that softens the edge of biblical sexuality because if we can say the framework of sexuality that God has built for our good and for our, His glory is just archaic and old and it doesn't bring freedom and it's oppressive, if we can just pitch that aside, then what does that mean? Then you can just do whatever you want to do, however you want to do it, in whatever way you want to do it. See, there's something attractive about teaching that blurs the line of money, making room for anything goes. And so ultimately, false teaching, it, lull, it lulls its, its hearers into complacency before leading them off into just outright denial of gospel truth. There is a wholesale pitching of the gospel and the truth of God's word in our culture today. Why? Because people are looking at it saying, I see the things of God, I understand what he says in regard to money, in regard to sexuality, in regard to living, in regard to life, whatever it might be, but they come at it and say, if I follow his ways, then I don't get to do what I want to do, but I want to do what I want to do, and so how do I make myself not feel guilty in this instance? Well, I'm not going to submit my life to God and his word and his ways, I'm just going to pitch out God and his word and his ways. Or, in the very minimum, I'm just going to find someone who comes along and tells me what I want to hear. And in the end, the thing that suffers the most, the casualty in it all, is just ultimately the gospel itself. Because these people... These false teachers are simultaneously claiming Jesus as their Lord. We're going to see this in next week's sermon. These men were coming in and saying, you know... Christ, I repudiate him. They were coming in going, Christ, he's my Lord. And yet they were teaching these things. And so as they were with one breath holding out, I am a believer, but with the rest of their life, they were doing things contrary to the ways of God. Peter says it should be no wonder that because of them, verse 2, the way of truth is blasphemed. People are looking at this and going, I see what they're saying with their mouth. They're walking And talking and saying, I'm a believer. But then with their life, they look nothing like a believer ought to be according to the book they're claiming to believe. And so then people are looking from the outside and looking in and just going, don't want anything to do with that. We're going to blaspheme the way of truth. See, in the end, their deceitfulness because of this, it just, it causes God and his gospel to be dishonored. It brings destruction upon themselves, swift destruction, Peter says. And denying the master who bought them, they confirm that their condemnation will not remain idle, nor will their destruction remain asleep. And so that's the first portrait. So we sort of step back and go, (laughs) I mean, that's sort of thick. I mean, earlier downstairs when we were praying before we came up here this morning, man, I'm telling you, I tried to give you guys a warning. If you haven't read ahead in chapter 2 of 2 Peter, man, it's serrated. It's got a sharp edge to it. These are some words that Peter isn't pulling any punches. He's going to come with some of the sharpest, stiffest, pointed words that you're probably going to find in all of Scripture regarding false teachers and false teaching. And he's not doing this because he's a salty old guy that just wants to be grumpy. He's doing this because the gospel's at stake. The gospel's at stake. Eternal souls are, are genuine at stake. So he says, listen, first portrait, you've got to understand what the impact of a false teachers looks like. But now he's going to shift us into the second portrait. And he's going to, he's going to start talking in this language. He's basically he's going to say, the reason why I can, I can speak with such certainty on these matters is because God has dealt this way in the past with like-minded individuals. 
I mean, Peter knows what's going on. All he's said is three verses so far, and some of us are probably just feeling the tightness of these verses where it's like, man, he's talking about destruction, about condemnation, how destruction's not going to be asleep. He's just going right after these guys. It's like, man, Peter, like that's, that sounds a little harsh. It's a little hard. Do we have to be that pointed with our words? I mean, is it really that bad if they're just saying the things they're saying and doing the things they're doing and the kind of impact that they're having? Is it really that bad? And, and Peter's going to come along and go, it's, it's really that bad. And the reason why I can speak with such certainty on these matters is because of this. I know my Old Testament. And as he moves us from that first portrait into the second portrait in the gallery, he's going to hone in on three specific biblical scenes from the early chapters of the book of Genesis to lay out for us the certainty of judgment and the hope of rescue. So again, if you came up to the second portrait in the gallery and you were to look at that little brass plaque underneath this portrait, that little brass plaque would say, if you want to know the idea of what this portrait's about, it'd be this, the certainty of judgment and the hope of rescue. What we see in this second portrait is just three different scenes from the Old Testament, which Peter uses to drive home his central point found in verse 9. So if you go down to verse 9, Peter says, this is what I'm driving at. This is what I want you to know. The Lord God, he knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and this same Lord, he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So collectively, these three scenes that, that Peter's going to paint into his second portrait, they, they leave a very, very powerful impression on us. In contrast to those who are teaching, Jesus will not come again. Jesus is not going to appear in power. Jesus will not come and judge. Peter sketches out these three biblical scenes which communicate the exact opposite. In depicting these scenes, it's almost as if Peter's saying this, where in the world did you come up with the idea that God would never judge anyone? Biblical history, Peter says, it is filled with historical events that confirm the exact opposite of everything that you're saying. God has always judged those who follow the ways of the world rather than the ways of his word. And so Peter says, like, don't take my word for it. Let's just open up our Bibles. And he goes jumping all the way back into the beginning chapters of the book of Genesis. And to drive home the certainty of judgment for the ungodly and the hope of rescue for the godly, Peter depicts three biblical scenes, and he's going to use an if-then argument Right? Have you guys ever argued this way? If this is true, if this is true, if this is true, then we can draw this conclusion. That's exactly what Peter's doing here in verses 4 through 10. You can, you can read them there. Verse 4, if God did not spare the angels. Verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world. Verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes. Verse 7, if he rescued righteous lot. Verse 9, then the, we know this about, about the Lord. So do you see what he's going to do here? Three scenes, if, 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 then. So in the first scene, Peter looks at the fallen angels, and he says this, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So you read verse 4, and you're like, okay, what's his driving point here? His point is this, no one is exempt from judgment. No one is exempt from judgment. 
Peter says that no one, not even the most glorious and powerful in all of God's creation, if these angels stood against God and we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're going to receive judgment, then why would you think you, a lesser being, if you enter into the exact same kind of rebellion, would receive anything less than what they're going to receive? Rebellion against God is rebellion against God, and even though their judgment might be delayed, it will most definitely come to pass. So again, if these exalted beings weren't beyond the coming judgment, then neither would these false teachers be beyond the coming judgment. So he calls out as an example the fallen angels. Then he shifts right into another scene inside this portrait. And it's a scene from the ancient world, but he's going to be talking about Noah. So what he's doing is he's referencing the flood from the book of Genesis. And in this scene, he adds to his argument by looking at the flooded world. Just as God did not spare the angels, so, Peter says, he did not spare the ancient world when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So moving from fallen angels to the flooded world, Peter again confirms the certainty of judgment for the ungodly. But notice this. And this is crucial to see. Notice that in this scene that Peter is painting, talking all about judgment, judgment to come, the wrath to come, Peter here begins to splash in colors of the gospel. He begins painting with some, some of the hues of God's grace. For in the midst of certain judgment, talking about the flood that flooded the world of the ungodly, we find that Peter also points our attention to the hope of rescue that we can have. He tells us, right in the midst of the flood, God preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, along with seven others. See, not only is our God the God who judges, but He's also the God who saves. And what makes His salvation so great is that in love, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, He saved us from the judgment to come in Christ. See, if you're ever just to take the doctrine of, of God's judgment, the fact that God and one of his characteristics is that he is the great judge, and you are to take this reality out into the marketplace, out into your neighborhood, out into your workplace, into your family, Thanksgiving dinner, and you're just beginning to talk about these things, if there's one doctrine that's going to receive flack, that's going to receive jeering, that's going to receive scoffing, if there's one truth that we hold to as a doctrine from our, the word of God, that receives more mocking and repudiation than any other doctrine, I dare say, is this fact that God is judge. We love the fact that God is love, that God is grace, that God is mercy, that God saves and all these things. But when it comes to the reality that God, Hebrews chapter 10, will judge his people, we take that and we put it down because that's the Old Testament God. That's the harsh God. That's not the God of love. But we miss the point of judgment because the point of judgment is love. What makes God and his salvation so good is that he is the God who is judge. Because you were on the receiving end, in your sin, on the receiving end of judgment. And in Christ you find rescue. 
And so to know the faithfulness, we just saying, great is thy faithfulness. God is surely faithful to save, but what makes his faithfulness so great in salvation is that he is simultaneously great in his faithfulness to judge. And so by pointing to the flooded world, Peter shows us that God's judgment, God's judgment is unavoidable. But it is not inescapable. Do you see what he's saying here? There's no way to avoid God's judgment. God is judge. And he will judge heaven and earth on that final day. But you don't have to stand before God on that final day and see him as judge. It is possible to escape the wrath to come, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. And the way that you escape the wrath to come on that final day of judgment is by being found in Christ. Because on the day that you stand before God on that final judgment, standing before him in Christ, you won't find God to be judge. You'll find God to be Father, Rescuer and Redeemer, the Lord of grace, the Lord of mercy, the Lord of peace. See, in Christ, through his death and resurrection, he has provided for our way of escape. By the blood of his cross, we find rescue from the wrath to come. Then Peter shifts again. We're still in that second portrait, but it's a third scene inside that portrait. And now he moves us from the flooded world to the, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says this, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. See, in these cities marked by the sensual conduct of the wicked, we we learn this truth that the pattern of God's judgment has been revealed. Just like the flood which God brought upon the world of the ungodly, so Sodom and Gomorrah stand, Peter says, as an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. He's going to take this theme and he's going to tease it out in chapter 3. But he says, hey, do you remember back in the flood during Noah's time? Do you remember sort of to the fire of Sodom and Gomorrah? He's going to take those two themes of flood and fire and he says when Christ comes back again, like this whole shooting match is going to wrap up in the same way. But for now, he's just teasing us. He's giving us a little, a little teaser, a little promo, saying that these things that we're reading about, it's just a foretaste. It's an example of what's to come. But here again, just like the flood, the goodness of God's grace shines as Peter stands righteous lot right alongside Noah, the herald of righteousness. Now, I believe there's a reason why Peter focuses his attention on Lot as an example of God's gracious rescue. See, Lot shows us what it looks like to live a godly life in an ungodly world. See, if there was one thing Lot knew beyond question, Lot knew the certainty of God's judgment and the hope of God's rescue. If you remember, I mean, you can go back into the book of Genesis. If I'm remembering rightly, it's like 17, 18, 19. It's right around in that area. You remember he was living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Some angels that looked on the parents of men came in and said, listen, this is like a little shooting match. It's about to go south really, really fast. Certain judgment is coming. 
And I'm telling you, you can avoid the certainty of judgment now by escaping this rescue that God is sending you right now. So if there was anybody in the Old Testament where you could just go, man, this, at least this one person knew the realities of the certainty of judgment to come and the hope of rescue found in God alone, it would be the man Lot. There was just something about Lot's relationship with God that drove him to walk in a manner that was pleasing to God. And as he lived, Peter says, among the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah day after day, their wholesale abandonment to sensual conduct burdened his soul. You read this in verses 7 and 8. Peter says, Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, and his soul was tormented over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So as he's living in a world where he's looking around and going, man, I see I see people who have just wholesale, they've abandoned the ways of God. And as he's seeing this and as he's hearing this, Peter says his soul was distressed and his soul was tormented by those who are saying, God's way, I don't want it. I'm going to live my life however I feel, however I please. And I think that knowing that God's judgment was unavoidable, yet not inescapable, stirred Lot's soul with distress and torment for those who were around him. So it just begs the question, are you distressed and tormented by what you see and by what you hear day after day? As you walk through the world of people who have just in the wholesale abandonment, just take the things of Christ and they've pitched them aside and said, I will be the king, thank you very much. Christ will not be king over me. And as they continue to make decisions in ways that are not pleasing to Christ, as you look at the certain judgment that will be theirs because they are not resting in hope, knowing that there is a way of escape for them through Christ, is that reality tormenting and distressing your souls? See, the world is never going to arrive there in that, own, in that place on their own. Just this past Wednesday, who died? Hugh Hefner, founder of the Playboy Empire. He passed away, and far from people mourning and being burdened of soul and having torment and distress, the overwhelming response to his life's work was one of just happy memorial. There were memorials memorializing this great man and what all he accomplished left and right. It was just all over. But the sensuality and the greed that brought pornography into the mainstream and the sensuality and the greed that objectified women and the sensuality and the greed that ushered numerous men and women into a form of sexual slavery, that's not something to be memorialized. It's not. None of us should have been looking at the life and the legacy left behind this man. Now, I'm not, I'm not doing anything to try to, to, to look at this man who's created in the image of God, and I'm not trying to kick this guy down, but I'm just try, trying to call a spade a spade. The things that he brought into the world, there are men and women addicted to their, to their eternal detriment, to the things of pornography who are going to spend hell, life and hell, for eternity because of the kind of work that this man was a part of to bring God's good gift of sexuality in a deviant form into, it's just pervasive everywhere. And he was one of the men 
Satan's dark kingdom used to bring that. We don't look at that and go, man, that guy was a great life. I'm so glad that uh, he did the things he did. We should look at that and have distress and torment because there's neighbors living around you right now who are going to go to hell forever because they're addicted to the things this man brought into the mainstream. And we should look at our neighbors and there should be distress and torment in our soul knowing that if they do not bend their knee and repent, trusting in the good news of Jesus Christ, they will face the eternal judgment of the good and righteous God. So we shouldn't look at these things and go, you know what, it's just no big deal. Let's just memorialize it. Something which should be the source of great distress and torment. On hearing the news of when he passed away, this one thought just laid hold of my mind all day. It was a thought I just couldn't shake, and it was just this, this thought here. He lived to be 91, and that after 91 years of living, I mean, his life was just devoted to the pursuit of sensuality. I mean, I don't know how else to say that. He was devoted to the pleasure of his senses. After 91 years of life devoted to the pursuit of sensuality, Hugh Hefner, a man with an internal soul, he stepped out of this world and he stepped into the presence of God's certain judgment. Like you can just rest on that beyond a shadow of a doubt. He lived his life with no category for a future judgment. It freed him up to a life of just unadulterated sensuality. And on September the 27th, he came face to face with the great judge of heaven and earth. I just couldn't shake that thought. And here were people plotting and memorializing him, not realizing the eternal realities that were at stake. That man is not going to know the pleasures of Christ forevermore. But see, before we get too far and we start clapping or like, yeah, man, more down with Hugh Hefner, you know, start going that route, what you need to realize is this, is that there's just a little bit of Hugh Hefner inside all of us. Because if you look at verse 10, what does verse 10 say? Those who are going to find judgment on that final day are those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and they despise God's authority. See, Hugh Hefner isn't the only one that stands inside that category of those who despise God's authority and those who indulge in the lust of defiling flesh. We are all just as prone as Hefner was to indulge in lust and to despise God's authority, which is the reason why every one of us needs the gospel. You see? We don't look around the world and go, yeah, those guys, judgment, hell, condemnation, destruction, wrath, what we do is we look into the word of God and go, that's my lot as well. Because if you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Christ, verse 10 describes you. You're right now despising his authority and the thing that guides your days is the indulgence and the lust of your defiling passions. And what that means is beyond a shadow of a doubt, if you die outside of Christ, is that you stand before God with the certainty of judgment. But what you need to know is that just because the certainty of judgment, that reality is unavoidable, it's not inescapable in Christ. 
It's not inescapable of Christ. The gospel teaches us that at the cross, God the judge paid out our punishment on Christ so that you and I could stand before God righteous and rescued. It's Martin Luther. It's, the, it's this great escape. It's this, it's this insane reversal. Because if you go to the book of Revelation that teases out for us what this coming judgment is going to look like, it looks like Christ the king as the judge of the world riding in and he ain't, he ain't taking any crap off anybody. But it's this Christ at his first coming, this one is going to come to judge who hung on the cross receiving our judgment that we deserve. It's insane. This is the good news of the gospel. The coming judge received our judgment so we could stand before the judge redeemed, rescued, and made clean. See, that's the good news of the coming judgment is that it is unavoidable, but it is escapable in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.